Are you a founder, co-founder, aspiring entrepreneur, or just someone who loves to hear about how companies are built? Then join us as we talk with founders and CEOs who have been there and done that. Welcome to the Founders Formula Podcast, sponsored by Hatchet Ventures. And now, your host, Chet Lovegren. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founders Formula Podcast, the show that's designed to bring you the latest and greatest insights from founders and CEOs worldwide, sponsored by Hatchet Ventures. As always, I'm your host, Chet Lovegren, coming at you with a brand new episode today. Um, Our guest today is a first-time founder, so we're really excited to learn from her and her journey as a first-time founder. It's been a while since we got a first-time founder on the show. We've had a lot of uh, repeat founders lately and and growth stage founders, but it's going to be awesome to talk to someone in the startup space early stage first-time founder. She's a proud Worcester resident and alumni of WPI. She's got an MS in material science and engineering with a background in sustainability with a focus on metals recycling. Please welcome to the show, CEO and co-founder of Vallis, Emily Molstad. Emily, how are you doing? Great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into it because um, you have a couple titles that you've held in the past and things you've done where I'm kind of like, that's interesting. And I'm kind of curious how those um, apply uh, to being a founder and some of the skill set that you have to have going into that. And then obviously talking about some of the skill gaps you might have had from things you haven't been able to experience in the past and how you've learned those things on your journey. Because, you know, we're, we're approaching our 30th episode here, folks. Emily is episode number 30. So we're really excited to have her. That's a pretty big milestone. Um, in terms of learnings that we've gotten from the podcast. And two things that I've recognized is that no two founders are really the same. There are some traits and qualities and stories and challenges that overlap simply because of the business model and the way that the world works. Um, But ultimately, everybody's got a different level of experience in different things. And so for some people, sales might be a complete, a completely native concept for others. It might be only a little, a, a, a little unknown. Uh, but then you have things like finance and marketing and then talking to boards. And we've talked to people who've raised money. We've talked to people who've sold products before we've talked to a lot of different people. And so everybody's got their hand in a little bit of everything. And it's always interesting to learn um, how people continuously improve and learn new things as they experience those challenges. But Enough of that. Emily, the way we like to start the show, as you know, is we like to hear a little bit about you and your background up to the point of being a first time founder. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, walking out of college with this MS in material science and engineering. What did you jump into? What did you start doing in your professional career? And then what was your time at at Solvus Global like before you went out and became became a founder of your own? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it, it's been a really fun journey to get to where I am today. And, and so it's to kind of step back into my my time at WPI. Um, you know, I, I wanted to pursue a career in engineering. I had a passion for sustainability, wasn't really sure what that meant or what I could do with that. Um, and so through my time there, um, actually, one of the first classes I took as a first year student was a project-based course called Recycle the World. Um, and that's where I met some very early on mentors, uh, Duran Apellian and, and Sean Kelly, who um, Duran being a, a, he was at the time a professor at WPI and Sean was a PhD student um, doing research within the recycling space and found it to be a really fascinating area. Um, you know, it's so critical for manufacturing um, and, and for sustainability. And 
so decided to kind of pursue seeing what I could do in that space. What research could I go into? Um, ended up joining and, and becoming a research assistant at the Center for Resource Recovery and Recycling at WPI, which is where I got to work more with Duran and Sean. Um, and after Sean finished his PhD, he went on to found Solvus Global with um, Duran as a co-founder and um, Aaron Burt, his colleague, who had also gotten his PhD at WPI. So you know, they went on to, to found Solvus Global. I was still an undergrad at the time, um, you know, desperately looking for internship opportunities, really trying to figure out uh, what I wanted to be doing, how I could be getting experience, um, and came across a position for a materials engineering intern at Solvus Global. Um, I applied and ended up getting the, the job. And so my first experience with Solvus was, was an, as a summer intern. Um, getting to work on uh, powder characterization for additive manufacturing, so a bit outside of the recycling space, but getting familiar with metals and metals processing. Um, and I just loved, you know, at the time, it was the founders, one full-time employee, and then a, a batch of us as first summer interns. And so started very, very early on at Solvis, and that was really my first startup experience. Um, and loved it, continued to work through finishing my undergrad and my graduate program. Um, and you know, at first I, I thought to myself, um, you know, maybe I should kind of branch out, get experience somewhere else, maybe working, you know, I'd had mentors and advisors sort of saying, go find a, a job at a larger company to get a, a variety of experience there. And I remember sitting down with Sean, telling him what my plans were saying, you know, let me go work somewhere else, get some exposure, and I'll come back and I'll bring that new skill set to solve this and to help it to continue to grow. And he gave me some of the best advice that anyone's ever given me, which was that, you know, here at Solvis, I was a, a critical part of the team and going to a bigger company, I, I wasn't going to get that same level of um, responsibility of opportunities to grow. Um, so he convinced me to stay and it's the best decision I ever made. So came on as a full-time materials engineer, um, working on a variety of different things. So Solvis is, has a, a variety of sort of verticals of technology that, that Solvis works on. And I'm happy to get um, a little bit later on deeper into their business model and how Solvis um, operates. But Sean and, and had realized that there was an opportunity for um, some of the research coming out of his PhD to, to grow that further and applied for um, an SBIR, Small Business Innovative Research Grant from the National Science Foundation. We were awarded that, um, got to work on those, those efforts, and eventually I took the lead on that research, which really was kind of the, the starting point for Valves to grow from there. So yeah, really kind of my, my whole career before founding Solvis um, was either in the recycling research space or working in a startup environment at Solvis. And very grateful for all the opportunities that I've gotten along the way. Yeah, that's that's really cool that you're kind of like the industry expert at that point. I see a lot of founders that have worked in some variety of a vertical or an industry before or have mm -hmm. dabbled in it or cross dabbled in it in one fashion or another. And they're kind of moving around. And then it's like, oh, there's this whole learning curve I had to that industry. But luckily for you, you've probably got a great head start uh, being able to spend that time in the same industry, following your passion congruently. I love what you were saying, Sean said um, about when you were trying to go and, and learn something at a bigger company, it's one of the things that I share all the time is my career trajectory as a leader going from manager to director to, you know, head of slash VP, however you want to call it these days is every time I got an increase in title and responsibility and of course, pay grade, uh, it was 
at a bigger company. And so I was actually being moved one more level down from the decision tree. So when I'm a manager at, you know, an early stage startup, I had a direct line into our CRO. But then when I become a director at, you know, a series A company, I'm reporting to a VP who's reporting to a CRO who's reporting to a CEO. And then when I became a department head in an enterprise company, I'm reporting into another person of another department that's reporting into a VP that's reporting into a senior VP that's reporting into a CRO that's reporting into a CEO. And it was weird that I just kept getting knocked down farther on that decision tree. So that's great advice that he gave you because it's true. It happens consistently as you move into bigger companies. You're not even really a cog in the wheel anymore as much as you are just dust settling in the in the machine at that point. So I, I love that uh, he gave you that that mentorship and that advice. Let's talk about Valis. So how did this idea for Valis come up and, and kind of what's the founding story behind the company? And then also let's dig into what Valis is and what it does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so the founding idea for Valis really came out of, of Sean's PhD research. Um, so he got his PhD in material science and engineering, um, focused on automotive aluminum recycling technology. So the foundation for that was um, their recycled aluminum um, reduces, you know, consumes 95% less energy than aluminum produced from ore. And uh, there's growing demand for it. So lightweighting initiatives to reduce, um, you know, the associated emissions with vehicles. But as you're consuming that aluminum, right, it needs to be effectively recycled. Um, and so it's looking at what is the physical technology that's needed to do that, um, but then also the operational capabilities. And throughout his research, he was exploring the uh, technology and the, and the systems that separate out different types of metal. Um, right? Because if you have a whole bunch of mixed metal and you throw it into a furnace, you get garbage, you need to be able to separate that. And realizing that these next generation systems are using a variety of sensors that's capturing really, really valuable data um, on, on the material. And we decided to explore what can you do with that data? How can you use that data information um, to deliver software solutions to recycling facilities to help them improve their, their operations? Um, so that's where uh, you know, Sean led the, the application to a phase one SBIR from the National Science Foundation. Um, we were awarded that. That was when I had um, recently come on full time at that point, and we were um, conducting a proof of concept, just really exploring what is what is the data, what can you do with it, um, generating data, you know, characterizing scrap metal is really a kind of you know knee deep in, in scrap at some points, and working with our, our interns there, um, and realized that there there was opportunities and solutions here. So went on, took that research to customer discovery of saying, okay, what, what are the solutions that metal recyclers really need? Um, and at the time we had gotten into the NSF I-Corps program, um, which is the, so the innovation core program to go through and do ex extensive customer discovery. And that was where I really stepped into the, the business role. Um, so I, I came on as entrepreneurial lead for that program. It's an eight week, super intensive program, traveled all across the US. Um, it was pre-COVID, so 2019, right, right under the radar, I actually got to go visit processing facilities, um, interviewing sort of at all different levels within operations to really understand what are the challenges that recyclers are facing, what, what tools can help them. Um, brought that into a phase two SBIR from the National Science Foundation. Um, brought on really great uh, 
partners, industry partners that were supporting that research. And again, realized that, okay, we, we started to hone in on what the product was really going to look like. Um, and from there, decided to spin out Ballast because actually Solvice's business model is to identify these really big global problems and figure out the technology that's needed to address that problem and build up the team um, simultaneously with the technology until it's ready for commercialization and it can be spun out um, into a standalone company. And so Ballas is the first spin out of Solvice Global um, you know, where we're independently owned and managed. I came on as um, CEO and my co-founder Caleb has his background and expertise in material, uh, sorry, machine learning and, and data science, very specific for the recycling industry. He's had years of experience of, of software and, and machine learning applications for recycling. So I like to joke that we've just sort of merged our brains together. I have the materials and, and metals background. He has the data science and machine learning background and um, we're driving forward on, on delivering those solutions. So Valis's mission is really to enable a circular economy for metals um, by using the power of data, right? So how can data inform um, how we're processing those materials to ensure that we're maximizing the recovery? So all of the materials that we've used yesterday and, and in the past can align with the demands of the future, right? Because the materials that we've used in the past aren't necessarily what we need today. Um, so it's how do you bridge that gap um, and, and then continue to use that to, to further empower recycling facilities so they can maximize their profitability, their stability. Because if those processing facilities don't stay open, then the entire recycling ecosystem really, really crumbles. And, and that's critical for sustainability. The sustainability and, and the security of, of manufacturing depends on those, those recycled materials being available. And so, yes, we, we deliver software solutions that integrates with equipment that's already been installed at processing facilities. And then we can then recover that, that data um, and we use our models to generate insights on material flow and quality and then providing insights into how they can be optimizing their processing to recover more material and increase the value of, of scrap products, what's ultimately then going to an end user. Um, and yeah, we launched a pilot in, in January um, with, with one of our industry partners and we're rocking and rolling, going full steam ahead. We brought on Ben Longa, who's our product director. He joined the team in, in 2021. Um, and now we're looking to grow the team even further in the, the coming months. That's awesome. And and how did you, uh, maybe I missed this, but how did you and Caleb meet? Yeah, Caleb and I actually have a very funny story in the sense we've kind of run in parallel in a lot of ways for quite some time before we met. Um, so we're actually both from Connecticut. Uh, so we, we both grew up in Connecticut, attended WPI. Um, I was one year ahead uh, of, of Caleb. Um, even so much as we both lived on the same dormitory floor our, our first years, just one year apart. Um, and uh, you know, through my undergraduate career, I had met Sean uh, through my curriculum and, and research in the material science and the recycling space. And Caleb had also met Sean where, where Sean needed some support on the more data science and, and software engineering side of his PhD. And so he actually leaned on Caleb for help there um, and so we were kind of running up, yeah, again, these like parallel sort of independent tracks had met Sean and then both started working full time at, at Solvis. So we worked together on that phase two SPIR um, where I was uh, PI and he was essentially the, the software technical lead. Um, and we just kind of got to grow together into our respective roles now. That's awesome. And you said that I think we were talking a little bit before the show 
Sean is is a board member at Vallis as well, right? So he you kind of that mentorship kind of stayed on. I just think that's really cool how congruently throughout your professional career and then into your foundership in this venture, um, you've kind of got people around you that you trust. I'm sure that's a that's a great confidence builder for what you're doing because it's like I've already worked with these people. In fact, one of these people, uh, you know, mentor and and hired me for the role that I had before this. So you can really take their their advice and their their work to heart, right? Not like uh, some of us out here when we're trying to find a co-founder and we're just like, oh, how do we do this? And how do we start promising equity to someone who we haven't really got the chance to work with a lot? Like it's a it's a really scary thing, right? It's like a professional marriage, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's a it's it's I feel like a lot of co-founders go through an arranged marriage, basically, where they're just like, OK, this aligns and I guess it's going to work. But I guess you're little more fortunate to be in a position where the people around you you've already had some of that proven experience with which is really cool absolutely yeah i'm i'm very grateful to have them and and have that continuous support too and i think sean kind of recognized my potential before i did and, and really pushed me and, and gave me the opportunity to grow into it and so just grateful very lucky for sure so i, I want to hear as a first-time founder what are some of the things that you've gone through over the last year and a half that you were like holy crap that was something I wasn't thinking about when I became a founder. That was really tough, but I've overcome it. Like, what was a huge challenge for you of something you haven't experienced before, something you found a really big learning curve to that if you could go back a year and a half and say, hey, Emily, this is the thing you really need to focus on. It'll get you way farther ahead than if you have to go through it when you experience it and learn learn from zero. What was a big learning curve for you as a first-time founder? I think for anyone that doesn't have, right. I I came from an engineering background. I don't have any sort of like formal business or or finance, um, education. And I really think the biggest learning curve for me was what it takes to fund your, your company to go out and, and, um, fundraise. And so that was a, a big hurdle there as far as figuring out exactly, um, what is, is needed. And, um, uh, Really, and, and also just looking at what are all the aspects of your business that you really need to understand and be able to communicate clearly. So I sort of think within the um, the fundraising journey, because I know we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that that specifically, was how do you best communicate your business and, and what you're doing? Um, and that was that was a journey for me as someone with a technical background, you know, trying to fight my way out of the, the technical jargon, um, not only for investors and, and, and individuals that we're talking to there, um, but also for our customers, right? How do we really translate what what we're doing? Um, because it, it is newer for the industry having, um, you know, machine learning and, and software-based capabilities for this industry. It's how do you translate that, that software engineering sort of uh, technical piece of things to what really matters most to to um, our customers, to our partners. And so kind of going back and and there's something that evolved over time and that we honed in on over time and we learned. I'd kind of go back and tell my um, my early self, my young, I guess year and a half younger self, that if you sit with that more, um, take the time to have sort of uncomfortable conversations with those that you're close with in the industry, which we were fortunate to do through the customer discovery process and we have really strong um, industry relationships, but to really dig in to make sure that you understand all of those aspects because it's going to play a role in pivots that your technology needs to make and identifying those early on. Because um, if you're not communicating clearly, then you're not going to hear them as as clearly. Um, and then 
uh, making sure that that's passed on, sort of translating the industry piece to your team, right? So do they understand all the complexities, the context of the metal recycling industry to then drive home what's needed for the product? And I think our team has really found a cadence in um, having that shared domain expertise and then being able to communicate that back to our customers. So it was quite kind of a journey to really figure out the right dictionary, the right language to be, to be using. Yeah, that's incredibly important and, and props to you for learning that now, because I work with a lot of early stage startups um, to essentially help them when the founders got a couple salespeople, but they're like, uh, I kind of need like a real sales process. We've been hacking it together. You know, we're at a million 1.5 in ARR, but we kind of need to get to that next step. But I'm not ready to hire a sales leader just yet because I don't feel my team is big enough. And a lot of them have like a product or an engineering or a project management background. Very few of them have had go to market leadership backgrounds. And I typically will see that like, yeah, they have this beautiful product, but even just their process, they built their process the way that they would buy as an analytical person. But I'm like, you're selling to people that don't think that way. So you're putting all these friction points in your buying cycle. You're talking about the product in a way that interests an engineer or someone that has that technical background, but to your standard prospect who also might, you know, register at a fifth to sixth grade reading level, which is standard for most, at least in the States Americans, this is going over their head, right? So finding the important way to talk about, especially when it's an innovative type of product that's very technical, how do you get to that core problem of what someone's gonna care about? It's the most common thing I see companies struggle with, their sales cycle process and their messaging because technical founders love to get in the, in the weeds about things, but it's like the, the, the standard prospect that you're probably gonna talk to is not taking you down those weeds just yet. They might after seeing a demo and a technical demo, but, an initial conversation, like your emails are now like this long with all everything that your product does and all the highlights where it's like, condense it down to 75 words or less. And what's the problem or the thought that the person you're talking to is having and where is your product relevant to that? So, I mean, I'm telling you, Emily, I've talked to people that are, you know, two and three decades older than us that haven't figured that out yet. And our founders. So congrats to you and your team. Cause that's a, that's a tough thing to figure out. And it's a good thing to figure out early and, and keep yourself in check often. So, um, let's, yeah, let's move over to that investor side of the conversation. So, uh, what can you talk about in terms of, um, investing, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, raising capital, how much, how much capital have you raised? What round are you in right now? Are you currently raising around and kind of what's the approach to investors in those conversations that you're having? Like, how do you, how do you look at that? And what's your uh, raise, capital raising model like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's been quite the journey since we started fundraising. And so we earlier this year closed on um, around $220,000 in safes. Uh, and now we are um, raising a $1 million price round, uh, ne nearing the, the end of that, hopefully closing um, soon in the next you know, four to six weeks there. So very I'm excited about that, but it was quite a, like I said, a journey to get to where we are today. Um, as I sort of kind of mentioned earlier, came into this really with not a, a clear understanding of what um, it goes into the fundraising process, even the, again, on translating and using the right language in the, the metal space and the software space, and then in the investment space, not, um, you know, coming into it, even really fully understanding what's the right language to be using and, and um, how to be communicating effectively with investors. 
So one huge part of our journey there, um, I'll give a, a shout out to the VentureWell Aspire program. It's an investment readiness uh, accelerator. And it was you know, basically a, a pretty intensive few week program where you're putting together your, um, your, your financial projections, your pitch decks, you're giving practice pitches, um, and you have people there that it's, it's a little bit low, lower stakes where they're tearing apart your pitch. And, and that's great because they want you to have it feel really polished and, and comfortable by the end of the program, helping you even understand um, you know, the diligence process, what goes into negotiations, understanding the different terms, sorry, safes, convertible notes, price round, et cetera, um, what stage you actually are at, right? So we are raising a seed round. Um, I had gone into that program thinking that we were at a series A, not very informed on like what the actual difference was between the, the stages. Um, and that was kind of the starting point for all of the mentors and advisors that were in that program that you got to work one-on-one -on -one with were investors. Um, and so having both connections to them as potential investors, but also to their network, you know, huge network. And it was a variety of you know, VC, corporate VC, angels, sort of they covered the spectrum of, of different types of, of investors. And they really provided an avenue for me throughout the entire process I've called up um, the mentors that I had throughout that program to pick their brain on, you know, whether it's terms that we've received or where we are at in the process, if we should be changing anything, you know, how we're presenting information. Um, and, and then having that network to go off of to actually meet investors. And um, so I'll say our, for finding the investors that we have today was sort of a mix of looking at, you know, really wanting to have New England based um, people on, on our team um, joining and, and that we're partnering with for ease of, of working with them and connecting with them and building up, especially the Central Mass community, the Central Massachusetts community for startup ecosystem. Uh, and so that's where you know, our angel investors came from and, and looking at some state institutions. Uh, and, and then from there, a mix of, you know, your network spreads. You just have to constantly really be asking for, is there anyone you can introduce me to, anyone that you think may be a good fit? Um, going to different sustainability-related events um, specific for startups because then you end up connecting to other founders that maybe have raised capital from investors that you're interested in and they can provide those warm introductions. Um, I also will say that our um, lead came from an online application. One of those few, I feel like, kind of rare moments where you say, you know what, I don't have a warm introduction. I really want to connect with them. They seem like a great fit. Let me get my information to them and, and see what happens. And it panned out. So really just using every avenue possible to connect with investors, to build and realizing too, that they're people. So you're building a relationship with people and you want it to be again, to the arranged marriage that you pointed out on founders um, investment and taking on investment is really like a, a marriage. Um, so making sure that it's people that you feel comfortable with, that you trust, and we've been really lucky to find a number of, of people that believe in us, support our, our mission, um, and just, you know, fingers crossed that everything plays out in the next couple of weeks and we'll be good to, good to go. Yeah. I mean, those people are going to be on your cap table for a long time, so you better make yeah. sure they're, uh, they're, uh, they're cool with you and, and, and vice versa. I've heard, I've heard stories where some people like, I follow the guy who created, I don't know if you've seen Stan on TikTok. It's like the creator storefront. And that guy's kind of been documenting a lot of his journey. And I thought it was really cool. One of the videos he published about like how much he value he's gotten out of his investors, because he's like, 
I have friends that are investors that get money from people and it's just like giving them updates and quarterly business reviews. And we go to the board meeting and that's just, if we don't hit our number, it's, you know, scrutiny. If we hit our number, it's a little bit of praise, but he's like, my investors, I've been so fortunate because like I literally will meet them in San Francisco every quarter and they're not ripping me apart. They're building me up and they're sharing what's worked in other spaces. And they bring in other people that they've worked with before to help advise me. And it's like, they understand that like, Hey, this is your money. So make it work for you. As opposed to some investors that he's seen where it's just like, I invest. And then if it grows, it grows, if it dies, it dies. And so I think that that is super important for people to be meet, be met with a lot of scrutiny. When you talk to investors, don't just get excited about a big check because there are investors out there who want to make their money work for them and will offer extra things to help you along the way and connect you to the right people. Um, but I think too many times, especially early on, people will be like, oh, million dollars, sweet. Okay, who cares if this person ever wants to talk to me again or if they're just dumping money into something to invest. Um, but I, I think that's awesome that you know, you're kind of putting a large net out there to vet a lot of different investors and not just following one path because that's going to net you much better results, I believe, in the long run. Um, as we close out the episode, what's uh, what's a founder's formula for success that you would recommend to any founder that's listening? What's something that you can look back and say, hey, this was something that I feel if I was writing a memoir today, this is this is kind of what I would put front and center in the prologue is the first chapter the most valuable thing that I've learned or the biggest piece of advice, or as we call it, the founder's formula to success uh, for any founder that might be listening. What would that be? My biggest piece of advice, and I think something that has attributed to, to our early success is that focus on the people and the relationships that you're building, right? Just to the, the conversation we were having there, kind of reframing it as they're, they're not investors, they're partners, right? You're looking at your customers as your partners. You're working with people to meet a, a, a common goal. And, and so when you focus on that and the relationships you can build and you foster those and, and kind of focus that more so on necessarily the dollar signs that may come out of those relationships, that's what's going to help to you know, have champions in, in your market space that's going to advocate for your product. Um, exactly for, for investors are going to make the connections for you, for the, the partners are going to push you in the right direction. And when you focus on those relationships, that's what's going to really help to steer you, um, to give you the confidence and, and sort of the backing to grow it at the pace and, and the scale that you need to. That's great. Um, Emily, if people want to engage with you or learn more about Valis, I'm assuming LinkedIn is a great place to do that. Any Anything else you want to plug? Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn. Um, we do have our website, so ballasinsights.com. Um, and, you know, always happy to get on a call and, and chat with anyone that's interested about learning what it's like to be a first time founder or to learn about the metal space. Um, yeah, always happy to get on a call or a quick chat. Awesome. Well, we appreciate your time today. Uh, we'll include some links in the show description below. If you want to check out Emily's LinkedIn, her company's LinkedIn or their website, if you're interested in engaging with myself, Hatch Adventures or the Founders Formula podcast further, we'll include links to everything in the show description for us as well. You know the drill every Tuesday, 9 a.m. Eastern with a new episode on your favorite podcast platform and on YouTube now on the sales doctor youtube page feel free to check us out emily thank you so much for your time we appreciate you and we'll catch everybody on the next one thanks for having me